Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about something that we probably don't talk about enough in life, but particularly in leadership, and that is the idea, the concept, the issue of risk. We have someone who has written extensively and thought extensively and lived extensively with this topic. And one of the things that I want you to pay attention to today, and we'll talk about this in the interview and at the end of the show, is a bit of a leadership risk assessment and planning exercise that is extremely practical and extremely valuable. So make sure that you save this episode or have a pen and piece of paper nearby so you can write this down to either do right after the podcast or in the very near future because I think it's going to be something that's valuable to you. We're going to get to a little bit more about our guest in just a second, but first... Do you want to accelerate your leadership success? There's a way you can do that for free, and it's called the MindScan. This assessment is an inventory based on the Nobel-nominated Hartman Value Profile, and it measures your capacity to make value judgments concerning you and the world around you. Instead of simply understanding how you behave, it objectively measures why you behave the way you do. Align your thinking strengths with your leadership goals by applying to take the MindScan today. All you need to do is apply by emailing community at life as leadership.com. You'll get a unique link and the opportunity to review your results. Both the assessment and review call are totally free. If you want to understand the how and why of your decision making, in order to more quickly get the results you want, the mind scan can be your next step to success. Once again, community at life as leadership.com. Now, on to today's interview. Our guest today has served on both for-profit and non-profit boards and as a chief executive officer. He created corporate risk management programs at three different companies and has managed complex financial portfolios in excess of tens of billions of dollars in size. He serves on the advisory board of the Center for Advancing Corporate Performance and the editorial board of the Journal of Risk Management in Financial Institutions. He's also founded two global professional associations and is the award-winning author of two books, Governance Reimagined, and his recently released title, The Board Member's Guide to Risk. Here is David Koenig. David, welcome to the podcast. Josh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. So I like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. So you ready for these? I am. Thank you. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Well, in my life, I've seen several people be presented with situations that I would describe as insurmountable, yet they maintained positive attitudes and did what they were able to do, often with a focus on other people. So in the end, the success of their living was probably different than what they'd been envisioning before being presented with these challenges. But what I've learned is that Each of us can be a gift to others, even if we are presented with incredible difficulties. 
The success we can realize through this focus, though, might be in ways that we can't imagine when we take our first steps in, in trying to deal with those situations. So my life lesson to share is that whatever challenges you face, you have to be sure to take care of yourself, but keep looking to serve in some way. Even if you perceive that service to be very insignificant, you might surprise yourself by how much your effort positively impacts others, and you might be surprised by the importance of your legacy. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is... A visionary who inspires someone focused on the needs of others who follow that inspiration, and someone who appreciates the contributions of others being truly humble in success. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Well, that's an easy one. What am I doing today to learn something new? That's something to ask every single day. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? Well, there are many on the bookshelf behind me, but to give your listeners one that will truly change their way of thinking in a permanent way, I'll recommend Eric Beinhacker's book called The Origin of Wealth. It was written back in 2007, which might seem like ages ago, but if you're not familiar with something called complexity economics or complex adaptive systems generally, uh, then you need to read his book. Could you give us a little bit more background and explanation of what that book's about? Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, if you think about it, it's, it's a play on the origin of species, um, but it's really looking at economics and what we've thought of and what we've been taught in economics for, gosh, at least the last 35, 40 years um, since I studied economics, and takes a different approach and says, what about all these complex networks that we operate in? Is wealth created through individuals or is wealth created through the way in which all of these systems interact with each other? And how is it that we can look at economics in a new way when we recognize that that's actually how our world works, not the way in which we were taught in the 1980s uh, in terms of totally rational expectations and perfectly functioning markets. Those are all very important, but these, these models, these complex adaptive system models um, are ones that have shown how to create economies, how to solve problems that economics has had trouble solving without making some of the assumptions that were necessary for um, this market version of economics to work. It's not discounting the markets. It's not saying markets aren't important. And what it is doing is getting you to a place of better understanding how they work. Um, and so once you see that, once you uh, envision some of the stuff that's in his book, you really can't see the world in the same way again. So that's why I recommend it. It, just, it will change totally the way in which you look at, at everything in life. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Yeah, and this is going to be you know, linked to what we just talked about with uh, Eric's book and, and what I try to get at in my book. I'd say shift your focus from thinking as leaders only as individuals. My sense is at times we celebrate the individual just a little too much, but what we have to remember is even CEOs have a boss, the board of directors, and boards of directors are leaders, but they lead as a whole. So a successful board is comprised of a number of different people, a number of different individuals, but they speak with one voice. Still, they operate as a system. And in many ways, changing our mindset to see our organizations as these complex systems that have really high interdependencies on systems within and without of the organization is going to bring us to a totally new perspective on leadership that emphasizes the individual a little bit less and works to enhance the function of the larger system uh, much more. And, and that's highly valuable. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? 
you're not going to like this because it has to be both. We have to continually ask why, because it's too easy to become complacent about how we do things, especially if we've been successful for a long time. I, I write a little bit about that in the book in terms of group think at the board level when we've been successful. And we continually have to ask why not, because we're always searching for new and better ways of doing things. So if we see something or think of something and it doesn't exist yet, we have to ask why not. And I think if we don't ask both with equal priority and, and really in a continuous loop, the likelihood is our organizations will become stale and ultimately they move to a place of destroying value. And we can talk a little bit later about um, some of the evidence that that actually occurs. So again, you're asking for one of the two, and I apologize because I think it has to be both. Well, I appreciate you at least providing rationale for both of your answers on this one. Now, David, today we're here to talk about your new book, The Board Member's Guide to Risk, but you've also written another award-winning book called Governance Reimagined, Organizational Design, Risk, and Value Creation. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that book and why this topic is so important to you. And then maybe what are the connections between your first book, Governance Reimagined, and your new book, The Board Member's Guide to Risk? Yeah, well, there, there is a connection uh, to my experiences uh, and between both books. So I, I will try not to relive my entire work history with you. But going back to when I started work in the mid-1980s, some of the very first work I was doing was helping organizations to understand how to manage their risk better. And it was trying to take away things that were, in essence, managerial uncertainties, things that they couldn't control. They might be market prices or interest rates, things like that, and help them design hedging uh, structures so that they could focus really on what they do well in their business. That continued for me to develop um, as I uh, advanced in my career and I built, um, along with other people in the company, uh, the first firm-wide risk management program in the mortgage banking business in the, in the early 90s. Now, firm-wide risk management is now known as enterprise risk management. But the basic idea is to look at all of the moving parts in, an, in a company, understand the things that drive them, understand things within the company that offset changes in other places, and really how to do your business better. How do you, how do you offset the things you can't control? How is it you enhance the things you can control? I was then volunteering as part of a professional association. That professional association had some governance issues. Um, some colleagues of mine and I who were also volunteering tried to fix those. And when we didn't have luck, we started another professional association. And the goal of that, it was really a, an unexpected uh, detour in my career, but the goal of that organization was to help advance governance and risk practices all around the world. Um, we had a focus on key financial markets, uh, emerging markets. You know, The organization grew, I think at its peak, probably to close to 80,000 members in 200 countries. And we had chapters in 60 different cities around the world. When I got done with that and handed that over to the people who I had hired, um, I really started to look at ways to put together the thoughts that I had on governance, risk, through all the different experiences and the different uh, positions I had had. And honestly, it was Eric Beinhacker's book that pulled that stuff together for me. So there was one piece that was missing, and it was me trying to explain some of the things that didn't make sense in the financial markets when I was managing risk uh, based on what I had learned. So Governance Reimagined is really about taking all that I had experienced, all that I had learned up to that point, and then taking stuff like what Eric had written about complexity science and piecing that all together. 
So uh, what I've heard from people about that book is it's not like anything else they've read. It was first published back in 2012. There's a second edition out in 2018. And it takes us through this whole idea of how we relate to each other. How is it that we define value? How is it that trust impacts the value of things? What are the biases that we have as human beings? Why do we have organizations? Why do we come together? Should we have top-down infrastructure or should we have some sort of distributed uh, authority? And then at the very end, I bring in this notion of commons management. And not to get too far off subject, but um, most people are familiar with something called the tragedy of the commons, which is where common pool resources like lakes or fields or the air and water um, can be polluted and destroyed while people try to consume as much of it as they can before others do. So the original notion of the tragedy of the commons was that the only way to govern those commons was through government regulation and, and very strict rules. But Eleanor Ostrom, who was an economics professor at Indiana University, uh, who ultimately won a Nobel Prize, looked at ways that self-governance of commons could actually be more efficient than even the typical corporate structure that we're used to dealing with. So it was no longer a government that was managing these commons. It was individuals and a collective, and there's a certain set of rules that are there. So this ties into the current book because ultimately what we're trying to get at when we identify commons in our organizations are the things that are important to everyone who's related to it. Brand, for example, um, is a commons. If you think about it, anyone who's part of your organization has access to the value of that brand. They also have the ability to enhance it or they have the ability to destroy it. So how do you set up a common structure of governance so that it's enhanced rather than destroyed? The same thing is true about your capacity to innovate and to take new risks. Those are commons. So in that book, I try to develop this in a very long, in-depth way. Um, I think it's maybe like 250 pages or so. And then in the new book, what I've done is to say, at the very top of the house, the board and the C-suite, how is it that you can ensure that your organization is structured in a way so that you're getting the most out of your capacity to take risk? And in all of this stuff, I want people to understand how to take risk better, how to take risk more confidently, not to have risk as we might more typically conceive of it, create fear in us. And then how do we respond well to things that we didn't expect? All of those things lead us towards something that I refer to as a positive skew, and I'm happy to talk more about that later. Um, but that's that's the general idea of the books. The, the new book is less than 100 pages long. You can read it in an hour and a half if you understand risk. You can read it in two and a half hours if you don't know anything about risk. And it's something that you can use then with your board colleagues or your work colleagues, you know, almost like a book club uh, to say, what are the things in here that resonate with you? What are the ideas we should talk further about? And, and the first book had really great, uh, reviews and really great response. And I'm, I'm happy so far, fingers crossed, the uh, ratings and reviews so far for the new book have been uh, really good as well. That's, that's, that makes me happy when I hear that. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned is how to ensure how to get the most out of your capacity to take risk. And I'd like for you to expound on that a little bit more and maybe provide some insight or, if necessary, differentiation between risk in individuals' lives and risk in a corporate or board context. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting delineation between those because you, you can't say that they're exactly the same and they're also not entirely different. So let's think about our risk-taking capacity. That's a function of what other people think of us as well as our own ideas. So you may have a fabulous idea. If no one will buy it from you, uh, whatever it is that you're offering, it's not going to matter. 
There's no financial capital coming to you from customers. If it's something that you need in order, uh, you need capital, you need to borrow money for, for you know, physical plant equipment or to hire people. If no one's willing to give you that, again, your idea is worth nothing. So risk-taking capacity is really what we're able to do, what it is we're able to convince others to fund us to do. So in many ways, our risk-taking capacity is driven by the level of trust that people have in us. So we can have an idea when we're an entrepreneur, brand new idea, no track record. You can expect that people are going to want more from us in exchange for funding that. On the other hand, if you're a corporation that's very well developed, has a long track record of, of success, maybe has gone through a couple of different successions in management, you may be out raising capital in the public markets. You might be issuing debt, you might even be issuing equity, and that's a way for you to raise capital. But what we're looking at in terms of our capacity is to say, overall, what are we being charged for? How does that compare to others? What is it that we're able to try that's new based on that capacity? And what is it that we can do to enhance the trust so that the cost of that capacity isn't something that's prohibitive? And you'd asked the question about individuals and that, that actually um, takes me back to a presentation I did a couple of years ago for a group of young entrepreneurs um, at St. Olaf College in the town where I live. And I think, you know, when I was invited to talk to them about governance and risk, um, they were probably expecting something quite a bit different than what I did talk to them about. And what I did do instead was to have them go through an exercise and, and um, you know, maybe helpful for, for some of the members of your audience to do this. But what I asked them to do was to first write down three things they believe will be true about themselves and their life situation one year from today. So three things. I mean, they're, they're things based on your age that you're pretty sure you know are going to be true in a year. Then I asked them to do the same thing five years from today. Five years, you start to introduce a little bit more uncertainty. Maybe you've got a new job. Maybe you've moved to a new town. Uh, your car might be getting a little bit older. And then I asked them to go even further out to 10 years. Now you've got a whole bunch of uncertainty and things that you're just not sure about, but I'm asking you to say things that you're pretty sure about your life situation and what it'll look like. If you're coming out of college, you're going to be 30 years old. That might seem ancient, but that's the, that's the frame of mind that you need to be in as you look forward. Now we go to statement of values, and I ask them to write down in three sentences or less what their values are. And then the very last step in this was to say, 10 years from today, define what success looks like. That could be being married, having kids, living in a nice house, uh, a new job, something I enjoy, might earn a PhD, whatever it might be. Now, governance is about creating the framework that allows you to pursue that success, subject to two constraints. The first one is your values, something you've just written down. So you have to be able to say everything that you're trying to achieve, everything that you're doing is consistent with those values. And then the second constraint is what I would call your capital constraints. In essence, these are your risk-taking capabilities and the ability for you as an individual. That's your life situation. When you come out of school, you've got a pretty small network. You have people you've been in school with, you might have the alumni network, but you really don't have a robust network that you can call upon for um, other forms of capital. You don't have a track record. You've got a degree, that's great. You may have done really well in your pursuit of that degree, that's great. But these are things that are relatively small. They're akin to what the entrepreneur is having to go through the first time they're trying to pitch an idea that they have. 
as you move along and as you govern so that you take this risk well, you do what you can do in the situation that you've got with the capital that you've got, you'll build greater trust, you'll expand your network, you'll get more freedom to act, and that'll ultimately draw you to a more likely achievement, maybe even beyond what you had written down in terms of success uh, in the 10 years forward. So in both cases, what we're looking at is, what are you capable of doing? What is it that you would like to do? And what are the values that you've laid out that tell you this is what's okay to do in pursuit of all of that? So I hope that answers your question, but um, they're, they're not completely separate, but they are, they are a little bit different. And one thing as you were explaining that, which, by the way, first of all, how did people respond to that experience? <laughs> I got good feedback, which is nice, because whenever I do a presentation that I haven't done before, uh, I'm not quite sure what to expect. But the feedback that I heard was really good. So I'm, I'm happy I didn't disappoint him. Yeah, it sounds like something that's incredibly valuable, and I'm going to be reiterating this at the end of the show. So listeners, if you've not yet written these things down, get ready because I want to revisit them, and you can also see them in today's show notes. Now, one thing that I was thinking about as you were speaking is that when it comes to corporate governance, you're having to take into consideration the opinions of stakeholders to varying degrees. And I'm sure different boards might do things differently. But do you think there should be an element of that when it comes to people thinking about their own lives? You mentioned the importance of values and capital. Do you think taking into consideration the people or communities that have invested in your life is important on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, that's to me, it's a simple answer, but it's not always an answer you're going to hear from everyone else. Um, stakeholders is a word that can sometimes get a negative reaction in, in corporate boards. And, and I think it's because it can be perceived as something that's being forced upon them or constraint to pursuing whatever it is they'd like to pursue. What I try to do is explain to people, again, in this whole concept of dependency on, on external networks and, and trust from others is that you gain two big things, not just two, but two big things I want to focus on. The first is engagement. And when you have engagement from people who care about your success, you're going to learn about things that you never expected. You're going to learn about good things. You're going to get new ideas. You're going to learn about people who might be interested in you that you hadn't thought of. Um, you're going to learn things that might be going wrong in time to deal with them before they become big problems. So you have to remember this group of stakeholders, and I'm going to include your competitors in, in the stakeholder network in which you operate. Every one of those stakeholders benefits when you succeed, with the exception of your competitors. So employees, capital providers, even regulators benefit when you do well. So, so you can succeed by engaging them. And the other side of this is, again, the thing I keep bringing back is trust. Every transaction that an organization engages in, trust impacts the cost of that transaction. If you want to hire someone to work for you and you've got a sketchy reputation, it's going to be more difficult to get the best people. You may not even be able to pay them enough. So what you wind up doing is having a suboptimal hire. Trust is, I, I've had a colleague describe it as the lubricant to transactions. I tend to look at it, I think you had had a guest on uh, recently that was talking about a trust equation. So I have something in my first book called a value equation. And the value equation is really how we decide whether anything is worth our capital. It's a, not always a mathematical exercise. It can be for financial instruments, but often it's just something we do in our heads to decide whether it makes sense to buy a particular car or to, to really have a friendship even. 
Um, that value equation is driven by the top part, the numerator, which is what you expect to get. What is it that is expected of value that you're going to get? The other part is how long do you expect to get this? How many times and for how long? And then the bottom part is a discount function that discounts back the risk of being disappointed. So you have a set of expectations and you assess how much chance there is that those expectations are not going to be met. Lower trust means a higher risk that those expectations aren't going to be met. So when the denominator goes up in value, the value of the organization or the value of the product or the value of the relationship goes down. When trust is higher, it goes up. And when trust is higher, the cost of generating all of those things that we said are valuable goes down. So trust impacts both the numerator and denominator of the value equation. And, and it's, I think, uh, if it's not exactly the middle chapter in my first book, it's pretty close because th that's a turning point for where I say, now let's move forward. How do we, how do we garner that trust? Um, so it's, it's incredibly important. So David, one of the things that you shared with me offline is this idea in your writing called rampant incrementalism. Could you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's actually one I love, and I, I won't take any credit for it at all. Uh, a gentleman named Dave Hurd, who was the CEO of the Principal Financial Group when I worked there, it was his idea. So think of an insurance company. They have to maintain stellar credit ratings. They have to be of the utmost surety. You want to have trust in the extreme with an insurance company. So when I went to work for this company, my sense was that they would be very staid and very conservative and not willing to do anything differently. I came into a situation that they needed to do something quite a bit differently than what they were doing before. So to present the idea of taking this risk, A, on me, but B, in, in, in implementing this new process and this new way of looking at things, I expected a lot of pushback. But Dave Hurd's mindset was, you always have to be experimenting. You always have to be taking new risks. Big risks make people afraid. They don't want big risks, but what they wanted to do was to take lots and lots and lots and lots of small risks. So that's sort of the incrementalism or the small risks and rampant means experimentation was happening throughout the organization. Then you find the ones that work well and you expand them, you invest in them, you make them bigger, but they have to prove themselves at the start. So when I first heard that, I thought it was a brilliant way to encapsulate what venture capital portfolios are like. So if you're a venture capitalist and you're out investing in new companies or, or startups, out of 10 that you invest in, two, three, if you're really, really fortunate, four of those 10 do well. Now you might think that's failure, but the way in which those work are they take very small bets on those 10 and the two, three or four that succeed, succeed so well that the portfolio overall does substantially better than if they had been out just investing in the stock market. That's the mindset I think that Dave Hurd was taking uh, through rampant incrementalism. And it's a mindset that I advocate uh, in terms of how organizations look at their risk taking. You should always have this venture capital mindset of always taking risks. Don't take ones that are gonna knock you out of business, um, but always be innovating and make sure you create the environment for people to innovate. And I think of a company like Alphabet, that's the parent company of Google, that does this in a significant way as well. Now, a team leader may hear this, 
They like this idea of taking lots of small risks, which is often better than taking big risks. But is there any potential for causing whiplash for employees if you don't do this well? And if so, do you have any recommendations or insights on how to practice and take small risks without overwhelming people within the organization? Well, so risks are best taken by those closest to our customers. So part of this is saying to people, we want you to, we want you to take risk. We want you to trust us that failing isn't going to create an end to your career. So I think you had asked something earlier about personal risk. Um, if people think, particularly when they're younger or even when they're actually older and, and quite a bit more successful, they might be too conservative because they don't want the damage to their reputation. So again, creating that environment of trust is to say, we want you to experiment. We want you to understand and communicate the risks around what you're experimenting with. The organization, and this, this comes from the board and, and the C-suite, has to have the infrastructure in place to help you understand what those risks are. Then what you're doing is giving people permission. So you know, it's, it's something that hopefully is not overwhelming as long as there's trust. Now, obviously, if you take risks and you strike out 10 times in a row and it looks like you really haven't done a good job understanding the either the source of exposures that you had or the key drivers of what your success would be, you know, that's probably going to hurt you. But, but the environment where there's trust that this kind of experimentation is expected uh, is one that, that shouldn't overwhelm. And, and that's really what it was like at Principal Financial Group. It, it felt very safe to be doing these things. Now, David, there are a couple things you brought up earlier in the interview that I want to ask you. We don't have tons and tons of time left today. Yeah. So I'm going to ask what are probably pretty deep and intricate questions that I'm hoping you can answer <laughs> in 60 seconds or less. So the first is top-down versus distributed leadership. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, you know, there has to be a mix of hierarchies and distribution. Um, what we know, though, is that the maximum group size when there is almost absolute trust is about 150 people. Uh, most organizations are much, much bigger than that. So you have to distribute out the authority into smaller and smaller groups. The group can be bigger if you have high levels of trust, but as soon as trust goes away, the, the maximum size that an effective group can be might shrink to as many as eight or 10 people. So the distributive uh, model is the one that I advocate. Um, there's a network governance aspect to that as well that's in the book. But you know, the last section of my book is called The King is Dead. Um, so that should tell you that uh, my favorite uh, way to do this is to distribute authority. And the next question is, you were talking about self-governance of the commons. And one of the things that that raised in my mind is, is this like laissez-faire capitalism or laissez-faire leadership? And for those of you who may not know, that's where you let things take their own course without too much interference. Any thoughts there? Yeah, it is within a box. Um, so there's a Carver governance model um, where they talk about policy boxes. And these policy boxes start really big at the board. Um, their objectives and the things that you're not allowed to do in pursuit of those objectives. As you distribute the authority, those boxes get smaller and smaller because they have to fit within the bigger box where they're violating the principles of, of, uh, of the board. When you get to the box that you feel comfortable, people can do whatever they want within that box. That's when you're applying this commons framework, uh, and it has to do with independence, it has to do with trust, it has to do with self-enforcement, so that when people are uh, violating rules within that box, they take care of it, not people on the outside. But at the same time, there are people on the outside who are monitoring. So I lay this out in uh, both books um, in more detail in the first book, but, but it is, it's, there's a laissez-faire within a box, if that makes sense to you. So you, you have freedom, but it's freedom within this defined set. 
that makes total sense. And I appreciate you being brief on each of those answers because there's a lot more that could be said about both. Now, before we finish up our interview today, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners? Either something from our conversation today that you would like to reiterate or something from any of your writings that you think would be important to bring up to listeners that we haven't had a chance yet to talk about today. Yeah, I'm just going to mention two things very quickly. Um, in the book, I talk about uh, the chair of Nokia and, and what he described as something called paranoid optimism. Um, I refer to something very similar as the positive skew of outcomes. And it's really about how you structure yourself to minimize the downside of risk taking and to maximize the upside. So when people read that and they, they look into uh, uh, paranoid optimism, there's a book that that uh, gentleman has written as well. And the other part of this is is mixing resiliency with innovation which is you want to be ready for surprises um, and you always, always want to be taking new risks to try and generate upside. So when you do that, you'll realize the perceived uh, outcome, or I shouldn't say the perceived, but the desired outcome of both paranoid optimism and this idea of positive skew. Well, David, if people have connected with what you've shared today, where can they go to find more about you, your work, and especially your new book, The Board Member's Guide to Risk? Yeah, so I'll send them to my website, which is David R koenig.com. So that's my middle initial, davidrkoenig.com. And if your listeners are in the C-suite and the board level, um, I'm going to suggest they go to another website as well called the DCRO, which is dcro.org. It's a collaborative to help improve risk governance and risk taking all around the world. So uh, welcome to join us there. and, And I'm happy to answer any questions people might have. David, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Josh. So if you liked what David had to share today and you want to delve deeper into some of the topics that he talked about, first of all, I would encourage you to reach out to him and you can do that at lifeasleadership.com slash 096. His email will be there and he already shared with you his website. But in addition to that, there are two episodes on trust that I would like to direct you to, and those are also going to be linked in the show notes. And those are episodes 63 with John O'Grady and 92 with Charles Green, as well as a throwback to early on episode 17. If you want to hear more about board leadership and risk management, and that's with Cynthia Pluche. Now, as I mentioned in the interview today, the three things that I want to leave you with, the three key takeaways for the day, are actually the three steps to the leadership risk assessment and planning exercise that David shared with us. And the first step is this. Write down three things you believe will be true about your life in one year, in five years, and in ten years. So one, five, and ten years from today, what are three things that you believe will be true about your life? So take some time to write those down. The second step is a statement of values. Write down your values in three sentences or less. What are those driving factors in your life, those things that give you direction and give you meaning in your life? And then the final step is to define what success looks like in 10 years. As David said, this is the framework that allows you to achieve your success. Once again, those three steps really quickly. Write down three things you believe will be true about your life in one, five, and ten years from today. Two, write down your values in three sentences or less. And finally, step three, define what success looks like in ten years. 
Now, if you've not yet done so, I encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to this podcast, especially if you've been listening for a few episodes but have not yet done so. Part of the reason I say this is because we're going to kick off next week really strong, and we have a guest who has worked in executive leadership for decades, but now he has devised a system and is teaching people how to learn from other leaders to gain their wisdom so they can get to the levels of influence they want to have more quickly. That doesn't mean that you can skip steps, but it helps you to learn the steps you need to take and helps you to get to where you want to go even faster than you would have otherwise. It's going to be a really good episode. I hope to see you then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well. <laughs>